Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. President Donald Trump with an executive order blocking Broadcom's bid for Qualcomm. Here to tell us more about it is Tony Balloon. He is the head of the China corporate consulting practice at Alston and Bird. And also we have Bloomberg's Department of Justice reporter David McLaughlin. Uh, David, maybe you can just set the tone for us. This is not necessarily that unusual. We've had instances in the past, Ant Financial, right? This is the uh, Chinese financial services company that is uh, owned by Alibaba's co-founder, Jack Ma. They abandoned a $1.2 billion bid for MoneyGram. Previously, the Trump administration had blocked the uh, acquisition of a Lattice Semiconductor by a private equity group that was uh, controlled by Chinese interests. Tell us about how uh, this particular action today with Broadcom fits into that. Uh, You're right. So there have been a lot of... um uh, a lot of uh, Chinese deals that have fallen apart uh, since uh, Trump came into office, um, and really, there's been a, a long, long-running concern about uh, China buying American technology uh, even before uh, he came in. Um, so, you mentioned some of the deals that have fallen apart um, in the Broadcom deal. Uh, although Broadcom is not a Chinese company, it's it's based in Singapore. Um, what we know from letters that the Treasury Department, um, which was leading this review, wrote, is that they had a, they had a fear that China um, would be able to sort of move into the space that that Qualcomm has right now, um, if Broadcom acquired Qualcomm. And the the fear and and the government's view was that uh, China and particularly Huawei Technologies uh, would sort of come to dominate. Uh, wireless tech, the next generation of wireless technology, which is known as as five as five G. So even though even though it was not a Chinese acquirer, China was sort of looming in the background this whole time. So, uh, Tony, come on in here, because some people have been saying uh, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense with respect to the fact that uh, Qualcomm. Broadcom is not necessarily a Chinese company. As David is saying, though, there is a Chinese influence in Singapore. Potentially, there is so. Do you think that this uh, makes enough sense from a uh, regulatory standpoint that it won't have a dampening effect on other potential deals? Well, I, I do think that there may potentially be a, a dampening effect. I, I, it is somewhat extraordinary that, that if you look at the deals that that the president or CFIUS has either blocked or or sought to unwind historically, um, they have actually almost always had a nexus with, with, with China or another perceived foreign power, whereas here uh, you really have a, a, a much more tangential connection uh, between, between China and the the actual investor. So I think I think it is a stretch, but I think it fits within what the Trump administration's overall posture has been towards towards China uh, since since they've come into power. 
David, this is not just limited to technology companies. I mentioned MoneyGram, but also energy companies with China Petrochemical. Explain how this may not just be focused on what you consider to be national security in technology. It could be national security in other industries. Uh, right. So, CFIUS, basically what they're primarily focused on generally are sort of uh, critical infrastructure. Um, so, that could be... Um, you know, telecommunications, that could be um, well, nuclear power plants, you know, which, which would never get off the ground. Uh, but um, any sort of um, uh, electri electrical grids would be another th thing. Um, it's just that I think technology has been in the news uh, because there have just been so many deals. And, and we've seen China has made a very concerted effort to build up its um, semiconductor know-how so that it's no longer sort of uh, uh, so it's no longer dependent on on outside suppliers and they've effectively I think hit a wall here in the United States um, yeah. there's just a lot of concern both in the administration and on Capitol Hill uh, rightly or wrongly about um, about the risk that China poses. Tony, I, I want to get back to what you were saying uh, about the dampening effect on potential deals. This used to be uh, considered the deals administration. I mean, President Trump is known as art of the deal. He's known for uh, business uh, and, and, and sort of trying to stimulate that. I'm just wondering, I mean, have you had conversations in the past few hours with clients that previously were considering deals that are now saying, you know what, we need to build in a much bigger buffer, or perhaps this isn't a good time. And uh, we misunderstood how aggressive this administration is going to be with respect to blocking M&A. Yeah, I, I think certainly we have had discussions with clients in the in the last several hours, but even even in, over the last several months, I think I think today is really just a, a their their worst fears coming coming home, which is that that there that if it's a if it's a Chinese investor, there are going to be significant limitations on the sectors uh, where investments can be made, and and I think there's just a, a general sense of trepidation right. coming out of China on that area. Although. Tony, you know, you have to wonder, is it just China or is it more broadly, too? Because we saw the AT&T and Time Warner deal uh, that uh, the Department of Justice sued to try to stop. Uh, there have been other potential ripples of interference. I mean, is it just isolated to China-related uh, deals or is this something broader? You know, I think certainly with respect to CFIUS, it's it's isolated uh, to, to China, and I think notwithstanding the the broader, you know, imposition of steel tariffs across a number of trading partners, that that was really a warning shot at, at China as well. So I do think there's a conscious effort by the administration to try and reset what it perceives as an unfair uh, economic playing field and, and try to get U.S. the U.S. away from what it perceives. What, what the Trump administration perceives as at a competitive disadvantage relative to China. Uh, Tony, is it also just worth noting that this is not necessarily limited to the Trump administration? I mean, uh, President Obama uh, played a role in blocking China's uh, acquisition of the German semiconductor firm uh, Axtron, correct? Correct, as well as uh, a, a Chinese-controlled company called Rawls and its development of wind farms adjacent to uh, U.S. restricted airspace near 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 a military installation. Um, but you know, I, I'd say in terms of presidential activity, 
I mean, there's only been five presidential orders since 1990 uh, ordering a, a divestiture or blocking uh, a, a foreign acquisition. And, and it's interesting that, you know, President Obama had two in his eight years, and President Trump has now had, you know, two in his first, you know, 14 months of office. Yeah, definitely fascinating. Thank you to both of you. Tony Balloon, partner and head of the China Corporate Consulting Practice at Alston and Bird, based in Atlanta. And our own David McLaughlin, Department of Justice reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. The housing market, mortgages, mortgage servicing, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, here to help us understand this industry and some of the changes it is undergoing is Willie Walker. He is the founder and the owner of Walker and Dunlap. Well, he's one of the owners. He's got a lot of shareholders. Uh, they're based in Bethesda, Maryland, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Willie, thank you so much for being here. Just tell people a little bit about Walker and Dunlap. They may not know about it if they're not in the, the D.C. area. Uh, good morning, Pim. Uh, publicly traded under the ticker of WD uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, billion six market cap. Uh, we are primarily focused in the multifamily uh, lending space. Uh, we did um, $28 billion of total transaction volume in 2017. And of that, $25 billion was loans on commercial real estate. And of that $25 billion of loans on commercial real estate, $20 billion was on apartment buildings. So we are very large in the apartment lending space. Uh, as you said in the in the lead-in, uh, we are a very big partner to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD uh, because they are the three sources, the dominant sources of capital to the uh, apartment uh, industry. Before we dig into some of the changes in, in Fannie and Freddie and, and HUD uh, that have been uh, happening, I want to talk about uh, just where we are in the credit cycle and the housing cycle. Uh, I just should point out that your shares were up more than 50% last year, up more than 10% this year. It's been an amazingly good time for real estate, and particularly uh, your company has done uh, particularly well. I'm just wondering, how long can this last now that we're seeing mortgage rates uh, rise to the to the highest level since 2011, and uh, you're seeing interest Interest rates rise just generally. So, Lisa, it's a great question. One of the things that W and D has been able to do is 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 grow significantly faster than the market. So, the overall commercial lending market was up three percent last year, and we grew forty percent in our overall lending. And the multifamily market was up five percent last year, and we grew forty three percent year on year. So, W and D has been able to grow much quicker than the market. With that said, to your question about what are the fundamentals from an underwriting standpoint, um, we did sixteen billion dollars of lending last year with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And of that $16 billion of loans, the average loan to value was 68%. And the average debt service cover, so how much cash flow there is to cover the cost of the debt, was 1.43 times. Those are extremely healthy underwriting standards at this time in a cycle. So you typically would think at the end of a cycle, people stretch, they need more debt, and they have less cash flow to cover the debt. We are not seeing that in our lending whatsoever. All right, now let's turn our attention to mortgage credit risk. And first of all, define it for us, but then tell us about how the GSEs, uh, Fannie and Freddie, participate in this currently. So 
Pim, two sides of that. One would be the multifamily sector where we are very large and a big partner of theirs. The other is the single family side of the house. Um, on the multifamily side, as I just gave you the credit statistics, that was with Fannie and Freddie at 68% and 1.43 times debt service cover on $16 billion of lending. So Fannie and Freddie on the multifamily side have not changed their credit box whatsoever and have held standards very tight because they're such a dominant force in the market. On the single family side, we don't do any single family lending with Fannie and Freddie. Um, I would say only this is a general comment. Fannie and Freddie got into trouble in the early 2000s by going after Alt-A loans in the single family side. That was due to the pressure from the single family RMBS market, the residential mortgage-backed securities market. That market hasn't come back. And as a result of that, Fannie and Freddie are not being pushed on the single family side from an underwriting standpoint and therefore able to hold their credit standards much better now than they were previously. I want to push back on that a little bit because we had a Bloomberg View columnist on uh, our show in the past few weeks who is saying uh, that there have been an increasing number of non-bank lenders who have been originating these single family uh, loans that are being insured by Fannie and, and Freddie and FHA. And it raises a question if they don't have to have skin in the game, if they are basically packaging and originating to sell and if Fannie, Freddie, and FHA are not necessarily checking on the risks there, could we be setting ourselves up for a, a big problem, perhaps one to be borne by the taxpayer? So exactly where you went with that, Lisa, because the originator of the mortgage holds no risk, it makes no difference whether they're an extremely well-capitalized bank or Quicken, who is not a bank, but is the largest single-family home originator in the country, because there is no counterparty risk. We as taxpayers on the single family side take 100% of the risk. On the multifamily business with Fannie and Freddie, companies like Walker and Dunlop take the first loss position. So there's a big difference between the securitization markets on the single family side and on the multifamily side. And so on commercial, private companies take the first loss position. In the single family side, the government has not gone and required that the originators of the mortgages hold that risk. And of all the things they need to reform as it relates to the GSEs, they don't need to throw away Fannie and Freddie. They just need to put private capital in front of government capital in the single family business, and they will get the same type of business they have on the multifamily side, which works really well and has really, really good credit performance. All right. Tell us about the pilot program that uh, that Freddie uh, and uh, Fannie are rolling out. On SFR? Yeah. So on single family uh, rental, which is a market we really like, uh, because I think that at the end of the day, uh, people want to still live in a attached single family home, but the economic reality is that fewer and fewer of them can afford to do it. So I think that single family rental is a great market. The FHFA, which is the regulator of Fannie and Freddie, has given both of them $1.2 billion of, if you will, lending capacity this year to go do a pilot in single family rental securitization. And so Fannie and Freddie are entering the market and uh, we and other lenders will go out and work with people who are most, one of the key issues here, Pim, is that they have required Fannie and Freddie to focus on affordable single family. Yeah. Willie Walker. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. We look forward to speaking with you again. Willie Walker, founder and owner of Walker and Dunlop, which is based in Bethesda, Maryland, and focuses on commercial real estate uh, multifamily homes.
What is a bearish bull market? Well, here to help us understand this is uh, James Paulson. Jim Paulson is the chief investment strategist for the Luthold Group. Uh, he helps to manage nearly $1.5 billion based in Minneapolis. Uh, Jim, always a pleasure. So what is a bearish bull market? <laughs> Good morning, Pim. Um, well, you know, I, I think the thing that's going to stick with me about this bull uh, forever is is how uh, the, the, its primary character was climbing a perpetual wall of worry. And this was reflected in a lot of the bull market through the first uh, six years uh, of this bull. It was led by some of the most defensive sectors or defensive stocks, the stuff that you'd buy if you you expected the market to fall apart. Um, The dividend aristocrats, you know, the high-quality defensive dividend payers were were among uh, the leadership of the market for the first six or seven years. If you look at low vol, the S&P 500 low, low volatility index, again, something you'd buy if you feared there was downside risk. Between the start of 2010 and uh, November of 2017, almost eight years, that, that completely matched the advance in the overall S&P 500 index. So in many ways, a big chunk of this bull until just recently was led by bears. And it has now started to shift. Uh, perhaps the the sentiment uh, toward a more bullish tint uh, is is starting to shift right now. What's not starting to shift just yet is moving out of the Goldilocks economic backdrop. At least that was according to the U.S. inflation numbers that we got today, uh, with uh, the consumer price index, uh, which which excludes food and energy rising 0.2 percent from January, in line with expectations, but not the blockbuster that some people were hoping for. Is there anything to make you change your allocations or actually uh, you know, sell things, buy things based on the economic data that we've been receiving recently? Yeah, Lisa, you know, I, I think that Goldilocks has changed. I mean, if you think about it here in the last 12 to 18 months, um, we've definitely had a pickup in inflation, not just wage inflation, which even the three-month moving average at 2.7 is the highest year-on-year rate in wage inflation right now uh, of the recovery. Um, but we've also had a pickup, you know, CPI has gone from zero to 2.2% since 2015. PPI went from minus four to almost plus four. Uh, you've had a 60% rise in the S&P Goldman Sachs Commodity Price Index in the last two years. Inflation expectations embedded in tips are, have just gone to three-year highs. Uh, so there's quite a bit of information just beyond any one number that, you know, we've got a change afoot there. And certainly we've had yields now going up, not only the Fed lifting rates, but 10-year bond yields closing in on 3%. Uh, and we've, that's starting, as we saw earlier in January, to challenge the stock market. We also have declining financial liquidity, you know, a Fed that's now contracting their balance sheet. A lot of the things of Goldilocks have changed, so I do think it's different. What I what I think is we're going to have a flattish year for the stock market, um, and I think we might have some more sell-offs along the way, also with rallies. And I certainly would, would maybe move more defensive as we move back up towards those January highs and look at some of the traditional out-of-favor defensive sectors like utilities and consumer staples. And I would get more aggressive back towards capital goods sectors if we go back to challenge those lows that we, we hit in February. Yeah, but Jim, if you, as you said earlier, if people have already invested in these defensive stocks, 
that that is what has led the market higher, why would you be de- adding to those holdings? Well, because in the last 12 to 18 months, Pim, defensive uh, areas of the stock market have just totally uh, underperformed dramatically relative to the cyclical areas. If you look at the uh, S&P cyclical sectors to defensive sectors, that went to a uh, record high for this recovery, and it's exploded just in the last six to uh, nine months. And so defensive stocks, if you, you should call up I, uh, the listeners to call up, look at a, a chart of utility stocks or consumer staples, even healthcare, some of the more traditional telecoms, you know, the more traditional defensive plays, they have really underperformed radically just in the last year and I do think it's a it's been so dramatic over a very short period of time that they now represent probably a good short-term buy Jim what about on the fixed income side today is a big day not only for US Treasury auctions but also Campbell soup is selling bonds as well as caterpillar and uh, over in Europe uh, issuance has also been picking up I mean it's amazing even valiant could sell bonds yesterday uh, which had been left for dead not so long ago yeah. are you buying into these de- deals I mean do you see value here or is this basically companies getting in uh, before the, the the going gets much much harder I I I uh, is hard to find value in the bond market for me. I I think that uh, the ten-year Treasury. I, I'm still suspecting that we've only got half the leg here this year, in where we're probably going to go up towards three and a half percent year yet before the year's out. And so I do think there's more carnage to be had in fixed income instruments. You're, I can see why uh, investors are more inclined towards credit spread, you know, because they continue to tighten. And I think those spreads will continue to tighten, meaning that corporate bonds probably outperform treasuries, but both probably do poorly. As far as the issuance, it is, it is uh, pretty striking. Um, you're seeing greater issuance uh, and, and really pretty good growth in corporate debt now over the last five, six years, or even in this recovery. And I think it reflects, Lisa, the, the latter point you made. I think it reflects uh, CEOs and treasurers going, hey, look, we may have turned the corner on the secular bond bull, and if, if yields are starting to trend higher again, this is a heck of a great time to lock in some long-term financing, and I think that's what we're seeing. You talked about inflation. What kind of stocks do well if we see acceleration in inflation? Well, I, I think I, I like the capital goods stocks, Pim, uh, over the balance of this uh, recovery. Now, I would go away from those at times, like the current moment, towards more defensive exposure, just concern of the overall market. But if the market keeps going up over the next few years, I think it will be led by the capital goods stocks. And a number of those are do really well in inflation. In fact, all of them tend to outperform. I'd put technology in there, but I'd also put materials, industrials, and energy. And all of the latter three in particular are very tied to commodity prices and low-stage industrial producer price inflation. Um, and I think, I, I, I think that uh, they will outperform the market if inflation fears continue to intensify. But in a down market, they might also go down. So one thing that we have been suggesting that investors look at is putting a little bit of direct commodities into your equity portfolio. You can do this through a, 
a diversified ETF like the DBC, uh, for example. And, you know, if inflation fears intensify, steel, aluminum, copper prices will rise. And steel, aluminum, and copper stocks may outperform the equity market, but they may still go down. And so I think that adds an additional level of diversity to your equity portfolio against inflation risk. Jim Paulson, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist at the Luthold Group, which oversees about uh, $1.5 billion from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, the bullish bear the bearish bull, where we are today in the cycle. Well, we want to uh, consult Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, about going, uh, about uh, his thoughts about the ongoing auctions uh, for U.S. Treasuries. Uh, Ira, give us an update on what's happening. And uh, I note that we're a little bit of really sort of inaction. We had a little bit of buying at the long end this morning, and that has faded right now. We're at three point one three percent for the thirty year and two point eight six percent for the ten year. Yeah, I think some of the the recent actions. So you you had a pop right after CPI and the news about uh, about the Secretary of State resigning. Um, you know that that brought in a little bit of a flight to quality. Wait, bid, just to I be think, clear, pop in price, uh, decline in yields. Uh, correct. Okay, right. go ahead. So you so you had uh, um, you know prices rallied. You had thirty year yields that went down to about three point one percent. They backed off now and are unchanged on the day. But I think part of that is is getting ready for the auctions because at one o'clock. Uh, the Treasury Department's going to be issuing some 30-year bonds, which is the longest maturity debt that uh, that the U.S. issues. And, you know, th- there is some worry about that. It's going to be a billion dollars more issued today than there was issued in, in January. And, um, you know, th- there is the worry that, that will investors uh, like these yields, given how much supply there's going to come. But so far, when you look at the 10-year auction yesterday, when you look at what's happened with T-bill auctions, actually things have gone just about average. Um, it's It's been, there hasn't been much change in either demand or in um, uh, in who's buying most of this uh, most of these securities. You know, Ira, I'm wondering what's the best way to frame this week's auctions. Is it uh, there was demand and they went off uh, pretty well, considering a lot of the jitters around the deepening deficit in the U.S. Uh, or is it? These were only average uh, auctions, even though yields were the highest levels since 2011 and 2008 and 2000 and pick your pick your uh, size and scope. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, Lisa, you know, a big thing is remember that these are yield, the yields that these are being issued at is the highest since, you know, 2014 or 2011, depending on what, which issues you're talking about. But that's just a function of where the market is. So it's not it's not surprising that they're being issued where they are. What's important is that where they're being issued compared to what's expected at the time that the auction closes. So these auctions have specific closing times. So let's say today we're going to close the auction at one o'clock. All the bids have to be in. If the market's expecting yields to be 3.14 and you get 3.2%, that's bad. That means that you had a weak demand, you couldn't fill the auctions where the market thought it was going to clear. That shows that there's a weak auction. But you haven't had that. You've had plus or minus a basis point, which is, you know, kind of, that's just noise. That's not that, that's not pointing to anything either nefarious or particularly good. So, but, but I think as these auctions continue to go on, we'll get a better understanding of, you know, what are the, the demand dynamics 
dynamics here because um, as we start issuing more and more bonds, particularly in two- and three-year notes, which is where the Treasury's increasing supply the most, that is, is potentially where you can see some chinks in the armor for demand for, uh, for Treasuries. Ira, uh, if you take a look at the White House's 2019 budget proposal, it would raise the deficit to nearly a trillion, right? That's double the projections from last year, and it would total over $7 trillion over the next decade. That pushes the national debt to, I believe, almost $30 trillion. Doesn't this mean that the Treasury is going to have to issue a lot of debt, something like one and a quarter trillion a year over the next five years? Who's going to buy all that? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question, and um, you know, ultimately there winds up probably being a bit of a crowding out, and this is where you know deficits don't always help the economy. I mean, the the idea is is that when uh, corporate bond issuers, for example, are having a problem issuing bonds, that's when the Treasury Department should step in, issue some debt, uh, try and stimulate the economy via uh, fiscal stimulus. But at some point, um, there's going to be so many uh, bonds outstanding that that yields and general are likely to go up. Now, you know, we say that, and then a lot of people then point to Japan and say, well, look, Japan has debt to GDP that's, you know, far higher than the U.S., and they still have interest rates near zero. But one of the ways that they've gotten there is from their central bank buying um, a significant amount of, of debt, both, uh, uh, both, both government debt as well as, um, as private sector debt as well. So, so the question is, can we, with the Fed not buying all this debt and not monetizing the uh, federal government can can yield stay here. The answer is probably not if if it were to be that high. Um, but then again, there, there's you know still a lot of demand at the moment. So um, you know, saying what's going to happen in 2020 or 2021 because of all this issuance is a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, near term, it seems that things are okay. Do you care at all about the turmoil in President Trump's cabinet? Um, not so much. Um, I, I think, particularly in, in the international space, um, I, I think you know the top of the house is obviously running things. So, you know, what's the response from the likes of of our trading partners and and you know large holders of debt like Japan and China? Do they change what they're going to do in 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 retaliation for things like tariffs? Um, no, I, I think changing the the cabinet isn't going to be changing those uh, uh, those kind of big questions that we still have to ask ourselves. Just quickly, Ira, you know, looking at all these auctions that are, that are coming up, right, uh, does this mean that they're going to just, what, could this overnight change in terms of how much the government has to pay to get people attracted? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Not yet, anyway. Okay. Thank you so much. Ira Jersey, uh, always a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, we'll check back in with you uh, regarding these auctions and as we go forward with respect to U.S. Interest rates, uh, interest rates. He is our chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.